Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to this edition of B Radio. I know it's much earlier than my normal show time, uh, but I wanted to accommodate my guest. Um, my guest today is Mitchell Joachim, uh, PhD. Actually, uh, why don't I just let you explain exactly what all your credentials are? Uh, you have the floor, Mitchell. <laughs> um, my credentials. I, well, I, let's see. I'm, I'm a professor at Columbia University. I'm also a professor at Parsons, the new school for design. I teach essentially architecture and urban design. I'm co-founder of Terraform One, a nonprofit design collaborative that specializes in humanitarian architecture and urban design. We are here in Brooklyn, and I'm, I'm very happy to be on the show. Thank you. We're definitely very happy to have you. Now, I had spoken to you a little bit on the phone, um, obviously, about this. You said that you actually read uh, the book, The Best That Money Can't Buy, back in like 2002. So you've already been exposed to the idea of the Venus Project. Um, yeah. Can you elaborate yeah, on that a little bit? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how I first came across the work. I, I imagine because uh, in the field that I'm in, uh, someone exposed it to me a, uh, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, maybe maybe it was a Google Im image search that might be possible, right? Uh, but I don't remember. But uh, seeing even just one small image uh, got me really curious to find out what what it was all about. And uh, I I found the website. I was very excited by the material I saw on the website. And then you know I got the book. Excellent. And, yeah. And and you know I love it. It's still uh, you know in my library and will be there forever. Uh, I often cite it as an example of, I, w I would call it futurology to my students. Uh, and I think it's, uh, the, the, the reception's always been mixed, and I think it's important to be critical of all projects, especially at, at the scale that Jacques's been working at. But uh, I can only send love beams his way. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I looked over a lot of your work, actually. I discovered you on um, Big Ideas for a Small Planet, and I absolutely loved your idea for uh, basically naturally making trees form into homes. That's what got me started. Um, I was able to look you up and um, get a hold of some of your information. I've looked a little bit at Terraform One's website, um, which I'm going to go ahead and plug right now. Um, that's terraform.org. Terra, yes. that's T-E-R-R-E, form.org. Um, please make sure to come and check this stuff out. I'm looking at a lot of his designs. They're definitely, you know, I think, in line with a lot of the things we value in the Venus Project. Um, have you, are you familiar with the Zeitgeist movement at all? I'm not exactly sure what that is. I know the German word for Zeitgeist is spirit of the times. But, uh, okay. Well, that, yeah, that's totally fine. I just uh, Basically, uh, Peter Joseph is an a independent filmmaker, and he made a film called Zeitgeist Addendum, which is actually how I got exposed to the idea of the Venus Project. Um, but basically, you know, um, as far as you, it's excellent, actually, to see that we have other people who are talking about sustainable architecture. Um, how much of an influence... You know, basically, overall, would you say that, uh, I mean, like, you were probably already working in the field, obviously. How much of an influence would you say the Venus Project had on your work? Um, well, I think the Venus Project comes from a, a grand tradition of thinking about utopia, moving from Thomas More to more contemporary, like Arcasante by Paulo Soleri, or Walking Cities by Archigram or, uh, um, I don't know, a couple of, you know, uh, what's his name, uh, French guy, doesn't mm -hmm. come to mind right now, but there's been, there, there's been ma many thinkers that, that have been working on large-scale reconceptualizations of cities, 
and, and this is this is this is nothing new. So what, what I find interesting about Venus Project work is that there, the details in the infrastructure and the mobility devices become more exciting. Yeah, I uh, definitely agree with that. That, that's the that, that's the Jonah Friedman's the French guy I was thinking about, mm -hmm. uh, or or um, Constance New Babylon. These are these are grand topologies that sort of overtake uh, uh, human scaled environments the size of a city. Okay. Solutions like Buckminster Fuller that involve densely packing millions of people in a in a mega city condition, and they they often leave out the the ways and means of getting to and fro such megacities. Uh, not, not, not in all cases, but in many cases they do. And I think Jacques has been working on getting into the minutia, getting into some of these transportation, transportation devices and rethinking them. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright in Broadacre City, however, did propose uh, similar things. Broadacre City did have new transportation solutions, these kind of personal helicopters or rocket belts and other concepts like three-wheeled vehicles where you would actually enter the car through the wheel are found in many, many of Frank Lloyd Wright's renderings. So I think architects in general and, and many planners have been thinking about cities from scratch or these new new, new kinds of utopias. Uh, Jacques, uh, Jacques has just done it in a way that's been very convincing and, and, and concentrates a lot on, on the mobility conditions. And also he's, he, he, he plays with the elements water, land, sea, and air. He seems to be constantly involved in moving back and forth comfortably between those elements. While many other cities locate themselves either under the water or at the, you know, the edge of an existing city growing out to absorb another you know, four million people in population. So um, you know, the metabolists would be a big example of, of that movement in Asia, especially in Japan. Anyway, I think that, that he, he seems to cover a lot of territory in his work. Yeah, definitely. Very, very prolific individual. Well, you know, it's, actually, it's great to hear, you know, that you had studied it so in-depth because, um, you know, obviously, uh, because of the fact that uh, the, the Zeitgeist movement more specifically ends up being kind of a uh, political activist movement, although they don't like to use the word political, and they talk about just, you know, efforts of social change that the Venus Project proposes to try to, um, bring about an end to scarcity through technology, things of that nature. Um, and so we often run into people who say that the, you know, that the science to do the kinds of things that we're talking about doing is, you know, is mythical, that it doesn't actually exist yet. And um, we tend to believe that it, it does exist. It's just not profitable to make things sustainable. It's not profitable to make things clean. Um, and so therefore, obviously, these things don't get invested. And I was actually just uh, watching your uh, your, your time on the Colbert Report, and um, you know, you were talking about how a guy from GM would get fired if he proposed a soft car. Um, yeah. So you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, um, we were looking at at MIT, the Smart Cities Group, really at designing yet another car of the future, and we thought that would just become uh, awfully anachronistic quickly. Mm -hmm. So. We didn't want to propose a car of the future. Instead, we wanted to propose a lexicon of ideas, a series of concepts that would rethink moving about cities. So some of those concepts were being soft. Can a vehicle be soft? Can we change the body of the car to make it softer, scuffable, bumpable? Can it move in a flock and a herd of these vehicles in a, uh, because the bodies are flexible? Is it okay to occasionally bump up or rub up against one another in kind of a what we deemed would be gentle congestion? 
Another thought would be stackability. These cars could stand up and interlock and connect to like shopping carts. Another thought was that these, that these wouldn't be vehicles at all. They would actually be a new kind of smart grid. They would have lithium-ion batteries, and there'd be so many of them embedded in each car and so many cars on every street. They can absorb peak loads from nearby buildings or recharge other buildings as they move about streets. So it's a highly distributed and dynamic uh, electrical grid. Um, we thought of these vehicles to be similar to a Facebook on wheels, so it wasn't how fast you were going, it was more like where you need to go and where your friends are. So it was also a shared ownership model, thinking about not public transportation or not single ownership, but, but that you would share these cars and you'd use them as you need to, and when you're done, the thing parks itself. Um, we, we, we really rethought everything we could possibly think about when it came to moving in cities. Now, one, one great project that came out of MIT was, and there have been many, was the airbag. And that's not that's a device that fits in every car. It doesn't belong to any one manufacturer. Right. It doesn't belong to any one group. So a lot of our ideas in this grand lexicon of thinking about mobility in cities is to find ways to put new technologies or technologies that are off the shelf into any car so that any manufacturer would be seriously involved or seriously invested in, in making these kinds of vehicles. I don't think in every case that sustainability uh, cost too much. That sustainability is 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 too much of a price to pay uh, to get things greener. I mean, it, it, I, when you think of something like organic food, yes, organic food costs more, and the production is not equivalent to the industrial agricultural systems in place, and therefore it's it's very difficult to compete price-wise. But there 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 are other examples where sustainable products. Uh, can cost at least the same as the existing products, or maybe make more money for the individual in the long term, right? Which is important. So it's the issue is about deferring gratification, not getting that money up front, but five years from now getting a payback. So, so uh, yeah, I, I wish more people looked at it that way for sure. I mean, it's it's basically it is it is beneficial in the long run, and you, and you see that. Um, like recently, uh, I just noticed when I went to the market to buy some fruit, there was a lot of local economy fruit there. And, you know, it, 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 that may not be necessarily as cheap in the long run, but when you keep jobs, you know, locally, then there's more people to buy your products, you know, because people have money. Um, so it, yep. there are a lot of things like that. When you talk about sustainability being achievable, we certainly agree with that. I think that the, the question is, like, for example, you know, why we're still on oil is because the, the profit motive involved with oil and the fact that you can artificially cultivate the scarcity of it, you know, and other non-renewable energy sources, it's more profitable um, in the long run because you can, you know, basically screw around with the, you know, with the, with the price mechanism to get people to pay more for it than they really should. Um, you know, well, but let's, yeah, let's, but, but let's think about this for a second. I mean, mm -hmm. Rex, Rex Tillerson, the CEO of ExxonMobil, it's in charge of like, the largest multi multinational company America has. It's, it can absorb Google just by staring at it. Uh, ExxonMobil is, is the heart of America. It's Standard Oil. It's the Rockefellers. Um, when, when Rex speaks to his, his investors, the people that own stock in his company, he could say without a shadow of a doubt that his, the, the, the investments that they've made will not change or decline for the next 10 to 15 years, guaranteed that oil or non-renewable sources of energy is not going anywhere in 10 to 15 years guaranteed. Because you have to think that 97% of everything runs on non-renewables. 
cars, buildings, everything in our cities is all based on, on fossil fuel production. So, yes, the technologies have been here for probably 50 years to make that, to make that shift into a sustainable, renewable economy. We have libraries and universities filled with silver bullet inventions that could change ways of, of, of how we power America. It's just that it's the price factor is one thing, but it's, it's, it takes a, a rather long time to, to shift all of that infrastructure. We're just not going to buy a new car overnight. We're not going to build new gas stations that are now electric stations overnight or figure out swappable battery solutions overnight. Unless the sky does fall, the world begins to end, our adrenaline starts to flow, and we can literally see, you, know, you see the end is arriving very soon. And then probably that would put the fear of God in us to, to change things quickly. Unfortunately, that would be too late. Yeah, Mr. Fresco agrees. He actually thinks it's going to require something like that, unfortunately, to get people to wake up enough to actually make the changes that are necessary because too many people are kind of, uh, what would I say, either apathetic or just uh, willfully ignorant um, of the problems that are created by the system as it is. Right, right. Or they got things on their mind like the economy, education, war, you know, health care. I think the environment is not always in even the top ten list of what the average American thinks about, unfortunately. Yeah, that's unfortunately very true. I mean, I, I noticed, like, uh, obviously as an activist, I run into this all the time. I, I I also play a lot of online video games in my spare time, and at one point I was um, uh, I was listening to my friend's Ventrilo server, and there was this guy, you know, this grown adult, just flipping out because he didn't get his digitized gear in World of Warcraft that doesn't even exist. And this guy was really upset, you know, supposedly an adult. And the reason this is relevant is that I was in that same Ventrilo channel at one time, and I, I talked a little bit about, you know, political stuff. And, of course, uh, after I had left, they told me, you know, that, hey, don't ever do that again, you know, because they don't want to talk about politics. So, you know, be, me being upset in any way about anything going on in the world was, was not okay. But it was certainly okay for this guy to flip out and go crazy over a video game. You know, and that's, it, we, we certainly have an interesting uh, uh, well, it, it, set of motives and values uh, that I think are going to need to change. Um, so, well, but, but, but uh, yes, I agree with you, and that's an excellent example. I mean, mm -hmm. video games being on the foreground of someone's mind. I mean, I, I completely believe that. We've got we've to think about what the average American is thinking about, like mm -hmm. Homer Simpson. It's duff beer. It's some, something on TV. Uh, it's how, you know, it, it's not necessarily really important issues. And I, I think that the idea is, for me, uh, is we can't change the American value system. People like white pick, picket fences and green lawns. People like watching TV. People like dealing with the things they have to deal with. Not everyone wants to confront somebody else's agenda. So part of what uh, we do is that we train designers and we propose designs ourselves that are about shifting the undergrid so that we live the same lives that we've always lived with the same you know, conveniences and sense of affluenza, except for the products that we're now using are greener. It doesn't have to shout it or scream it. It's just it's greener in its undergrid. Uh, it's the same razor you use every day, except for this razor is not filled with you know, various types of VOCs and chemicals and is impossible to disassemble. This razor is fantastic for the environment, and it actually right. costs slightly less at the point of purchase when you're going to buy one at your supermarket. That's and, awesome. And so it's up to designers, designers to send out that first signal of human intention.
I think Jacques is doing that at the scale of the city. I think uh, we at Terraform do that in everything from the doorknob to a democracy. Right. Oh, that's awesome, actually. And I would like to talk some more about uh, this because one of the reasons I actually wanted to have you on my show is that we have a lot of people in the Zeitgeist movement, in particular fans of the Venus Project, who are, are now young, you know, getting ready to go into college, and they want to try to find things to pursue, um, you know, and basically places to be educated. And I guess the question would be, I, I notice obviously you're involved in the education business. You know, what, what would you suggest to people who want to get an education that will further these aims that we have towards making a more sustainable future? Um, investment banking. I think they should get get to Wall Street and learn how to make a lot of money, and then when they have that, I'm slightly being glib, if that's not obvious, but use that <laughs> money for, for, for philanthropic and humanitarian purposes. Okay. Uh, invest invest in companies that that that, that uh, they feel are are good for the environment, are good for Earth, are good for social justice reasons. I think that that you know if you if you have that posture and affect already, then these individuals will be able to find companies that are accountable for the damages that they've done and not invest in them. Or if they are doing good, do place investments in them. I mean, that fits the money market's a big, big place to consider. I mean, policy is also another direction. We, we need some great people in the policy world that know how to shift ordinances, know how to shift or focus directions of, of, of large companies working with governments to get them on board to have some of these uh, incentives that would allow for us to change over to renewables or use sustainable products. Uh, you know, studying environmental engineering, of course, that's great. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of courses now that I mean, there's no subject in any university that I can think of where being green can't be part of the meta theme. In other words, being green is, is a universal thought, and it really applies to almost every discipline, whether you're in psychology, biology, or, you know, business school. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big movement. The Green Revolution's over with. We won, so now the concept is mainstream. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely am noticing that as the more I've been studying about this, actually, I've been finding more and more movements. Uh, the cradle-to-cradle -cradle movement was one of them. Uh, different people who want to try to create things uh, you know, that are sustainable and just absolutely recyclable. And as it is slowly becoming fashionable to the, you know, the upper middle class, you know, it is becoming more mainstream, absolutely. Um, now, I guess, uh, you know, it, I, I can see where you're coming from also about having the money because, you know, like investing in, you know, making money on Wall Street, is, we've run into this quite a bit, actually, in our, in our movement, is that, you know, there are a lot of people who agree with our ideas, but almost universally, they're the people who actually are on the bottom rung, so therefore they, they see that there is a problem. The people at the top don't, you know, don't see anything because they're quite content with their lives. So it's kind of, you know, it's like, for example, you know, it would be great if somebody could invest in the Venus Project or or Terraform One, you know, as you know, as an alternative. But those kinds of the people who generally have the money, it's, we're not even on their radar in many cases. So, um, so I see where you're coming from on that for sure. Um, now, I guess, you, like you said, there are courses available. I know that here in Michigan recently, they just opened a. Uh, a course I could take uh, on um, sustainable renewable energy, um, the basically alternative energy courses, uh, I guess, so that you could actually, you know, get certified in it. So, well, you know, at Columbia University, where, where I teach, Jeffrey Sachs and the Earth Institute have started a program in sustainability where you can study sustainability as an undergraduate. There is a curriculum stream for graduates getting a, a master degree in sustainability or sustainable development or sustainable design, and there is a PhD 
section, which is both split into corporate or academic-based PhD research, that is also in the subject of sustainability and sustainable development. Uh, uh, I think you know, Colum there are other schools. I think Arizona's got a, a, a school of sustainability. Um, I think four or five others are doing it. I know Oberlin College with David Orr has been doing it probably since the beginning. Uh, Minnesota is running a project on sustainability or entire school. There are a lot of folks uh, and a lot of programs out there where sustainability is becoming a, a huge factor. Uh, Harvard's Graduate School of Design is, has a, a new master's program where you concentrate in sustainability. So it's, I think it's, it's a pretty ubiquitous field now. Yeah, that was actually kind of what I was getting at with the original question was just the, the subject of just, you know, what's, what, where should people be studying, who should be, they, they be talking to in order to learn these things that we're looking at on the Venus Project and actually be able to practically, you know, apply the things that Jacques Fresco is designing. Um, now, let me, uh, I've been like perusing your website here. You have a lot of impressive designs. Um, do me a favor, you know, for the listeners, explain about these, these, these houses that are basically made out of trees. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a project that we have. We started at MIT with Javier Urbana and Laura Greedon, uh, or Dr. Greedon, I guess Dr. Urbana now, where we were thinking, um, how can we make a house fit into the metabolism of an ecosystem, fit 100% into the environment, to become a part of the environment. Uh, and we, they're, they're, one of the ideas we had was using a technique called pleaching, which is grafting woody plants together to form a specific geometry. And this is nothing new. It's been around for 2,500 years. Uh, people have been using this gardening technique for a long time. And we thought, well, if you can graft woody plants into specific geometries, why not predetermine the geometry in a computer uh, and then produce scaffolds through CNC methods, scaffolds from geometry driven in the computer that would train the plants, woody plants, trees, vines, etc., into um, a usable structure, a structure that would be living. The plants would be fitted through these scaffolds into a lattice-like configuration, and they would be grafted together at points where they meet or touch. And plants that previously didn't have the ability to stabilize, they were parasitic, they needed a wall to grow on like many vines, now can be triangulated and they can stabilize themselves. So when you remove the scaffolds, the plant will be self-supporting uh, and would be living and would be one holistic plant instead of, you know, 50 separate plants. And this idea has, has uh, been promoted for, I think it's about seven years now. And we have a version of it here in Brooklyn um, growing on our roof, one, one wall section where we have been testing the best possible species for growing a living house or a fab treehab home made of trees in the city of New York. So that, that requires a, studies about infestation, studies about solar income, studies uh, about the, the specific species that performs the best, um, etc. wind loading, everything. So we're, we're constantly testing it. There's some folks in Germany who've jumped ahead of the game and have made some of these structures, but they're, they're uh, I don't know, a, a bit underwhelming. And some folks in Israel, uh, who uh, plantware, who have been perfecting the technology of grafting different types of ficus together and doing it at, at high speeds. Uh, other companies want us, are, want us to um, genetically modify our plants so they would grow quicker. We can grow trees about 
let's say poplar to the size of 80 feet within a year and start grafting the poplar together. But, um, I'm not sure if going to genetic modification is the right route. You know, the precautionary principle, precautionary principle in science stipulates it until you really understand the consequences. Don't put it out there in the environment. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Having um, done a lot of studying on Monsanto um, <laughs> and the various crazy things that they're doing with genetic modification, um, I, I'm not like totally scared of it. I just think that um, in many cases, the only things that they ever really genetically modify are things that they're looking for towards profit motive. They don't really care about, you know, like making food more nutritious. They don't care about making larger crop yields. They generally just care about, you know, uh, basically making it so that they can make themselves the king of seeds. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I was also looking here, in vitro meat habitats. So they basically have like living uh, organic shelters, or at least the, the precursor idea to something that's kind of like a living habitat. Yeah, well, we've, been, we've perfected the vegetable house. That would be the tree house. So we, we moved on uh, based on a joke from a colleague, actually my uh, advisor Bill Mitchell at MIT, but she said, if you've, you've done the treehouse, why don't you move on to the meat house? And the thought lingered for some time. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Oliver Medvedic at Harvard, um, who studied at the Harvard Medical School, is a molecular cell biologist. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we got together and built a combined industrial arts biology lab together? And so we, we put one together on eBay and fitted it up here in our place in Brooklyn. Um, the proposal for our first project would be to grow industrial objects made from extracellular matrix in, in pig cells. Uh, we've been doing this in regenerative medicine since 2000, 2001, the first papers were published. And they do that to transplant organs. What, what, essentially what it is is taking cells, printing them on an inkjet printer in layers uh, to form a geometry that gets folded up. Uh, to make a simple bladder or an esophagus, basically a non-functioning flesh-like organ. And that right. organ is then inserted into the patient, and you're good to go. Well, what intrigued us as architects was that, well, you can control the geometry of, of meat, and you can print it. So again, it's the same system as the Fab Trehab. We take a geometry in the computer print those cells to match the geometry. We can make leather handbags, leather wristwatch bands, leather belts out of meat grown in test tubes. So we have a product where no sentient creature is harmed, where no living being was hurt to make a leather product. So this is victimless, essentially. It's a victimless product. And we thought, well, if we're going to do this for homes, why not? Then we produce a victimless shelter. So we, we grew a, a, a demonstration model, or the idea is to grow this demonstration model to house size at some point and have homes that are 100% organic. And it's a research project, which means it's a question. We don't know where it's going, but here are some of the answers, and this is some of the groundwork that we've done. So um, it's been pretty successful so far. And the, the object here is to win the PETA prize, which is a million dollars for the human consumption of meat. Wow. Well, you know, Jacques actually talked about that, is that eventually we can even just, like, engineer meat, like, like you're talking about, just so that you can have meat without having actually harmed anything, and possibly while you're at it, engineer it so that it's healthier, you know, uh, have more nutritional value. 
That's right, but it tastes horrible. So we're thinking that in vitro meat products and the pita prize is, is um, thank God it's out there. Uh, maybe if we can't get people to eat it, we can at least get them to use it to hold their pants up or to be on their feet as <laughs> shoes. Right. No, I, I agree with that. Being a person who wears leather trench coats, I, I could I would definitely feel a lot better about it if we didn't have to kill anything. Right. Um, there you go. Yeah. Um, now, it, basically, uh, have you researched it all in the nanotech, or is that something that's just really too far off? Um, nanotech is not too far off. We have a colleague here, Peter Eden, who is a, a sort of nanotech specialist. Uh, but, you know, right now, uh, we're not doing the nanotech thing. Okay. Um, I'm also looking at, a, that was actually a question from the, from the listeners, but uh, looking at uh, your Matscape, uh, really interesting design. You've got, like, let's see, it's a uh, material mosaic triplex, 50% living house and contiguous la- landscape. Contiguous um, landscape, yeah. yeah. Contiguous, sorry. <laughs> I was reading too fast. But, uh, yeah, go ahead and talk about that. Uh, the Matscape project was a uh, kind of a compromise solution to the Fab Tree app. There are a lot of clients that wanted to have the tree house, and they want to have it now. And we told them, well, it is, you know, it's not, not possible for a series of reasons. But we decided that we can produce sections of living walls that can fit into a very typical stud frame wall construction. So the Matscape project is, 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 is more or less a, a conventional house where 50% is business as usual, but the other 50% is about being as green as possible. So here, where we can, we'll, we'll fit in sections of the wall made up of uh, grafted ficus. Where we can, we'll fit in sections of these walls with PVs or uh, wind quills or some, or some kind of ETFE foil for natural ventilation. So we'll fit it out with as many uh, fantastic and realizable energy solutions, but at a smaller scale and on a grid. And that grid is about three foot two by three foot two, and it fits locally into the landscape after we take a kind of audit of bioclimatic vectors. Uh, we then figure out where solar cells would work appro- appropriately, where there's enough wind to put in some wind power solution devices. And we make uh, a home that is, uh, as far as we can tell, fitted into the landscape as much as possible. But it's not, not a 100% living treehouse. Yeah, that's um. They're, they're definitely beautiful to look at. Uh, I know. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, now, I've also seen it. Basically, we've been looking over a lot of the different stuff that's on here. The willow balls, and one of the things that actually you know, this all reminds me of. I mean, just to dip into fantasy a little bit here is um, like the the elven culture and a lot of your various fantasy worlds would would make their living dwellings out of living creatures, living trees, things of that nature. And it was interesting to me to look this over, and it, you know, it made me wonder if maybe you know you had ever gone through your Dungeons and Dragons phase and gotten any you know like inspirations for how you can actually you know turn these living beings naturally into something. Uh, well, I think I list <laughs> it's listed, and if it's not inc- commonly known, that you know I'm a huge fan of Gary Gygax. Uh, sorry that he passed away somewhat recently. But uh, nothing wrong with learning from the elves. <laughs> Definitely. Um, sorry to take it in that direction. I just couldn't help it after I looked at that stuff because it, it all just reminded me of that. And um, it's interesting because that's something you would have looked at to be such a fantasy, but, it, but obviously you've done the science and you look at it, and it doesn't take magic to make this sort of thing happen. It, it's all possible. And yes. And the same thing about, like, the uh, like what you're talking about with the, the airbag, you know, is an excellent example of, like, you know, 
design work that came together. It's like if you would talk to somebody, you know, say 20 years before that, they'd be like, what, a bag of air in your car? Come on, that's crazy. You know? Right. Well, they would say the same thing about the elevator about 100, 120 years ago. It wasn't until Otis invented the emergency brake that made elevator technology feasible in every building. No one has ever died in an elevator accident, uh, at least not because of uh, some obscure mechanical failure. So it's making things safe, first and foremost. So we certainly think of that often. Or one of our projects is about jetpack packing. The jetpack has come of age. It would be very hard to find an American or anybody on Earth, especially someone young, that doesn't have some fantasy or belief that we'll be flying around in jetpacks one day. So part of one of the projects that we do in Terraform is to reify uh, the city of our not-too-distant future that's based on moving around in jetpacks and what are the consequences architecturally, what are the consequences urbanistically, and what are the form, character, and engineering associated with making these kinds of jetpacks. Some of the things that we've gleaned is that jetpacks will probably need tugboats or some kind of air tug to move them uh, longer distances. And when they get close to their destination, they would break off and, and, and use their, their fuel contained inside them. They also need to have ceilings, couldn't go too high, and floors where you didn't want them to go too low, and a certain kind of performance criteria that would allow them to be flexible to occasionally bounce or knock into something and not kill the passenger or damage the thing they hit. So there needs to be an environmental envelope around them, hopefully pneumatic, similar to some kind of dirigible system, where it's okay to rub up and bump into other objects that are flying. Same principle with the soft cars. In this case, it's a 3D version. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, I was, I was looking at something else, actually, before my show, and I was talking to some of the guys, you know, listeners on Ventrilo, and I was looking at your rapid refuse or uh, reuse, uh, and it occurred to me, like, you, you basically have, like, this kind of the photograph here on the website of, like, a pile of trash and what looks like little robotic bugs, um, you know, that are cleaning up the trash. Uh, and it occurred to me that it, it almost seemed as though, uh, like, when I looked at these robots, because at first I was looking at it, I was like, what is this? Are these bugs? And I looked at it, I was like, oh, no, they're robots. Um, you know, and it seemed as though perhaps, like, the designs are in some way inspired by nature. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're going to look at something that's good at, you know, taking resources and turning them into something else, termites and ants would probably be a good place to start. I mean, is there any kind of natural inspiration behind these designs? Um, I, I, wow. Well, I would say uh, thank you, first of all, but uh, I think that the designs were more influenced um, from WALL-E or Walt Disney than, than nature at first. Although now when I think about it, sure, that it definitely was implicit. Uh, I think most architects have been involved in biomimicry since the dawn of architecture. So it's, it's nothing new to our field. I know many other fields and sciences are now embracing that as a concept, but I, I, I don't think there is a, a single period in architecture in any culture that didn't learn from nature. So uh, that, that, that fantasy, that, that desire line has is, is always been in uh, has always always existed. Uh, the, that project Rapid Refuse, Refuse was about thinking uh, about trash and using trash to reconstitute our future cities, using trash that exists today that we can find in any landfill in America and using it to make uh, spaces. And that's, that's, a, that, that's a thought that if I was in some kind of alien species looking down at the earth, 
I would think that uh, humans have invented cities to produce nothing but trash. Right? New York City produces 36,000 tons of trash per day. Uh, in one hour, we have enough trash uh, that's compacted, actually, enough trash in one hour to fill the Statue of Liberty. In about two weeks, the amount of paper New York City throws out can fill this, the, the Empire State Building. And I can go on and on and on. I thought, well, why don't we use all of this waste for something else, something that has a purpose? So very similar to the story of Wally. And actually, I'd, I'd, I'd heard about it through Ben Schwegler, who is at the, the R&D department uh, uh, in um, Disney's Imagineering, he's the head, uh, before we, we had fully embarked on the project. We, it was more or less a sketch back then. He had shown me glimpses of the movie, and I thought, this is fantastic. I wish I had 380 uh, designers working for me to make you know, our project, Rapid Refuse, uh, into what that movie had, had shown. But it's a, a, a grand fantasy about using trash in to make uh, big big forms. In this case, Wally, this lovely robot, uh, was making um, just pyramids. We thought, well, if you can make dumb blocks out of trash, why not puzzle fit existing, or sorry, change existing technologies, uh, things that make bales of crushed bottles, for instance, or bales of, of uh, crushed cars, etc. Change their jaws ever so slightly so that they make smart smart puzzle-fitting bricks. And these bricks would link together to form domes or archways or other spaces so that eventually our cities can mine landfills for future spaces. And that we can start rethinking objects from the beginning or from their creation to be reused again and again and again. And this is the thought that, the, that urbanism becomes perpetual. Waste has gone away. That's Gertrude Stein. Away has gone away, actually. There is no place to put trash. We must always confront it. So we might as well think of uh, what we're calling a creation-to-creation-to-creation system where urbanism and waste become one singular loop, and both of them have a, a, a useful function. We do this through those, those cute, if not affable, robots, some of them looking like insects. But at first, it would just be modified existing uh, uh, trash compacting technology at industrial scales, which is if you can find it anywhere. You know, that's, uh, that's actually great. It occurred to me one day that um, uh, they were exposing that there's this giant pile of plastic at the bottom of the ocean that's like apparently about the size of Texas. And it occurred to me in the future that, you know, obviously all this plastic is here. You know, maybe we should just be gathering it up and like turning it into useful products rather than making more plastic. So, you know, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense to me, you know, when you, when you put it that way, we can take this trash and, you know, turn it into something else, yeah, mining, right. <laughs> mining right. landfills. That's yeah, a yeah. novel concept. Well, plastic uh, is a very uh, intelligent nutrient. In fact, it's, it's fairly inert. It doesn't necessarily harm the environment. It's, it'll just be here forever. If we fell in love with plastic, like we've fallen in love with diamonds and treated it like a precious material, it wouldn't end up someplace in the ocean into that, what's it called, the great uh, Jair, or the great plastic reef. Right. Uh, the plastic would be a never-ending, incredibly constantly recyclable system where we can use it in our everyday lives and we don't toss it away as if it had no meaning or purpose. And I think that's, that's something to think about. Bill McDonough, Cameron Tompkin-Wise, many other industrialists. I had a conversation with Philip Stark, uh, Philippe Stark, 
thinking exactly that, that we don't want to get rid of plastic per se. We just need to change our value system in relationship to the material. Well, they, uh, they just, like, for example, I know not all states do uh, recycling, like 10 cents per can or whatever that you bring in or bottle. Um, and I noticed that because when I drive across the country, for example, here in Michigan, we do give 10 cents back, and you'd almost never see a bottle or can lying anywhere. Um, they want to they want to expand that actually to go into uh, the sports drink bottles too because you still see those lying around like your Gatorade, Powerade, and um, you know it's an example of giving a value to something like that, you know, and, and, and the change in mentality that comes with it uh, because you know in, in in states where you don't get anything for it they don't you know it's it's everywhere it's it's just it's a big you know basically ball of trash and yeah it's it, it's interesting to me I I'm, I'm still chuckling about that off the air, the notion that, you know, someday we might be mining our trash, which I still think is a great idea. It's just it occurs to me how funny it would be is that, you know, if we have to do that because, you know, we've managed to, you know, deplete the resources of the planet right. so much, you know, it would think, you'd think that they would just get smart and just start reusing it right now. Um, uh, but uh, the comments from the, uh, the listeners are really great. Everybody's really enjoying this interview. I want to thank you again for coming on. Um, well, and, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. Say, say hello to Jacques. Tell him I'm going to visit him in Florida. That's actually uh, something I was going to bring up is you really should go down there and visit him. I can, I can help you make that happen if you want. Yeah, I, I've, I, I've sent him a ping over the years a couple of times, and, and uh, I just never, you know, I'm always, I'm always on the other side, Fort Lauderdale or Boca or Delray, and I never make it quite where he is. Mm-hmm. But uh, next time I go down, I'm, I'm, I'm hell-bent to check it out. Yeah, you can sit there and listen to the guy talk for hours, and it's just amazing all the things that he's been through, um, you know, and the, the, the reasons that he came to the different, uh, you know, re- basically the different conclusions that he came to, just different things that happened in his life. Um, but in addition, I guess, uh, since you've read the book, um, I know it's been a while, where are you still familiar with the idea of a resource-based economy, wherein we... Uh, kind of get past the idea of monetary exchange and just start to make the resources more readily available to people through, you know, superior technology and automation to eliminate scarcity. Yeah, uh, of course. I, 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 you know, w- one thing at a time. I think, I, 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 I think uh, through, through our field, through design, we, we're going to do our part. Mm-hmm. And I think through other folks in economics and in policy need to do their part. And through these slow introductions, convincing introductions, then this kind of shift uh, will take place. I, I, we don't really go too far in our own, well, within our own particular idiom to involve ourselves in how the economy could be shifted or not shifted. I think it's more of a we demonstrate, show how we're making new, exciting, innovative things and get people really, I don't know, really saturated with desire to go out and do it. So if, they're, if, they, if they find a lot of funk in the functionalism in one of our cars and it you know, entices them to get them, then we've, we've done our job. Yeah, that definitely, that definitely helps a lot because it's generally we, we're always trying to you know, point to things that are already happening so that we have examples and that the mentality will go along with it, basically, right. I guess what you're getting at. And I agree with you totally. I mean, it was, wasn't until that long ago, actually, you know, I would argue with people about uh, energy and how we could be doing that for free. And, you know, I, I point up, you know, geothermal, and they, of course, say, well, geothermal Star Trek, it's not real. It, it, it just it amazed me that nobody knew that the majority of Iceland is geothermal. Um, right. It's yeah. powered by geothermal. It's happening right now. Um, it is kind yeah. of location-driven, but yeah, go ahead and 
make your comment? No, no, no geo, geothermal's fabulous. Uh, I mean, it's certainly very real. It's a little expensive to dig the wells, but uh, there's, there's, there's nothing unreal about geothermal. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, you know, um, when, you get, when you create your cities, I mean, I, I saw the model that was in Big Ideas for a Small Planet. It, it was awesome to look at your, your totally natural city. It once again just screamed Elvin at the top of its lungs. It was like, this is like That's a futuristic a, Elvin city. Um, the New York Observer said it looked like spaghetti and meatballs, but I'll, I'll take the Elvin comment. No. Well, no, <laughs> forget those people. But yeah, I, when you integrate your when you integrate your systems, obviously, I mean, are, are you integrating, you know, basically that you know the food production can be done, you know, locally right there, you know, uh, it, it, pretty much like it, it basically are you integrating the the systems that people need to live in the cities themselves locally rather than having people you know, have to commute all over the place to get their products. Yeah, one, one, a colleague of mine at Columbia, Dixon Despommier, has thought of this concept called the vertical farm, and we certainly embrace that in how we've been rethinking Manhattan to be 100% self-sufficient within its own political boundaries. So that model that you're seeing is a version of Manhattan where it produces uh, all of its energy, uh, considers all of its waste, deals with its own water, and certainly makes its own food all within its own political boundaries. No inputs, no outputs. That is the theoretical model for that project. So what, what would Manhattan look like if there were no inputs or outputs? And that project essentially uh, explores some very new relationships and some very new possibilities. Central Park won't be the same Central Park. Uh, we'll cap it at around 9 million people and leave it like that and think or rethink how we can do housing in this kind of situation. Can right. we use nothing but solar panel to power solar panels to power Manhattan? Of course we can. For about forty-six billion dollars adjusted, I think for two thousand seven, uh, we can have all of Manhattan run on nothing but the sun. That would take up about eighteen percent of the area of Brooklyn and all of Staten Island. Right. But obviously, you wouldn't just cover Brooklyn and Staten Island with solar panels. We have three thousand uh, acres of unshaded roof space in the city of Manhattan. And that's where we would want to put those solar panels. And we want to integrate that with, with water harvesting and wind turbines, et cetera. So we do these big theoretical models on looking at a very radical solution for how Manhattan could be green, much different than Bloomberg's plan for uh, greening New York City, which is a, has a lot of quality to it, but it's not provocative. So it's kind of how we purpose things. Excellent. Well, you know, I guess uh, to give you a a compliment here. Some of the some of my listeners in the chat room that's associated with the show are saying now that they're interested in applying at Columbia University because they want to come learn from you. So, um, if any luck, uh, the the molding of the two, uh, basically the, the merging of the two ideas coming together. That's basically what it is. Is like what you're talking about one time, one thing at a time. We are looking. We have a lot of people that have an you know, like a wet appetite for what can I be doing right now? What can I be doing to uh, uh, to to get this you know this thing moving, um, and that's why I brought up the idea of you know the education that came up earlier. And these are transitional phases; these are things that can be done now. And I think that uh, you know you demonstrating that over and over again in your work is great. Um, now, if uh, all right, thanks very much. Yeah, if people want to get involved, um, obviously you know maybe perhaps people who are already you know uh, educated and such should they just go to your website and contact you guys? Yeah, send me an email, MJ like. Uh, MJ, I don't know, Michael Jackson, but not, uh, at terryform.org, T-E-R-R-E-F-O-R-M. And, and just send me a ping. Uh, I'll say hello. And if you're ever in New York City, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. 
come by. You know, uh, we'll, we're, we're very happy to give you a tour of what goes on here. I think we're, we're supposed to, according to the IRS, anyway. <laughs> That's great. Um, I was just looking once again on some of the pictures of your site. Uh, there's something here called the Green Brain. Uh, see, a, sm a smart park for a new city, central open space in Korea, I guess. Yeah, it's got you listed in the credits. Um, you want to explain that project? Um, the short part of the project is creating a semiotic pulse of these, with these squid-like shapes to show these people in that park that these squid-like shapes are um, used for uh, occupying the park in many different seasons. Uh, in this case, they use a natural fuel, a biofuel, to locally control the microclimate. So in the winter, these squids would produce a radiant heat right, made from natural fuels so that you can picnic underneath it, which is important. You don't want to lose open space in a dense city. This is not something that's happening in the suburbs. Or during the, the heat of summertime, it would produce a cooling mist that would come out from these large squids, and you would occupy those spaces underneath. There are also hot spots, ways to get linked and wired. There are meeting points. Uh, there are ways of uh, redefining kind of uh, public space through follies, through large objects that, that are very, very hard to forget, yet have many, many layers and functions. Uh, there, there are similar, similar versions of this done in Lavalette in Paris and some other folks doing these uh, cooling trees, which are another project, I think, in Barcelona that were kind of taking that same theme and giving it to the Koreans. Have you, uh, have you had more luck uh, outside of the United States with, with spreading these ideas? Um, would you say there's any country in particular that's more interested? Uh, well, I think I can con conclude on, on that note, which is uh, we've had a lot of good luck. And, I, I, you know, hopefully I'm going to find some wood and knock on it. Uh, is there anything? <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of good luck. And I think that's because essentially we're, we're not in it for the money. Uh, we're, we're in it because we... Well, one, probably don't have anything better to do, but this is what we love to do, and it's a passion, and, and we're absorbed in it. So I think, I think many people can see that, and, and you know, it's a group. Uh, it's not just me that you can see there's like six or seven of us that are there that are involved, uh, at least heading various parts of what Terraform does. And, you know, we, we've got many people here this whole summer. We had 43 students working on a farm that we put here in urban Brooklyn, in downtown Brooklyn. We built a farm on the roof, which was very interesting. And, it was, and people came from all over, I think uh, 15 different countries and many states in the United States. And, uh, you know, we'll be doing it again uh, mid-break and then again next summer. And, you know, we're going to keep on doing it for as long as we can. Or, well, that's you know, until ExxonMobil buys us out, we all sell out and <laughs> on a beach someplace. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly hope that never happens. But um, in, in any case, um, it, was been, it has been great having you on the show. Um, and uh, I will absolutely talk to Jacques. Um, I can get you his phone number, too, if you do right. want to arrange to go down there. But, um, and um, thank you also for providing uh, some information about what some people can do now. Because that's basically been like the focus of the Venus Project has been just about spreading the awareness that these things can work. And we have a lot of people in our movement who are interested in, okay, well, that's great. What can I do now? You know, I, I, I understand. I'm on board. You know, what can we be doing to, you know, move in this direction? And I think that what you guys are doing is definitely an excellent example of that. Um, so 
Um, if you had anything uh, further to conclude with, um, I was basically it. Uh, we're pr- approaching the end of the show, so I'll okay. give you the floor for a few minutes if you have anything you want to say. Um, no, I, you know, I think uh, we've enjoyed kind of a virtual bromance with shocks, and I think that uh, the, the work that we're doing is, is like-minded. Uh, mm-hmm. We're pretty much in the same directions, and, and uh, you know, maybe we can get more competitive to bring out some kind of an internal critique to uh, uh, refasten these ideas or to uh, reconceptualize them so that some of them are maybe more feasible or not, but I, I, I don't I don't think that's really in in our purpose. Uh, I think our, you know the the more the merrier. So uh, there's Excellent. nothing yeah I, nothing nothing negative to say, uh, and usually I do. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having me. Sure. Mitchell Joachim, uh, PhD on V Radio. Um, definitely appreciate having you on and. Um, I look forward to watching what uh, what you do in the future. If anything big is coming up and you want to spread awareness of it, let me know, like any uh, events or anything that you're planning. And um, I will then, in turn, of course, filter that down to the Zeitgeist Movement, which has about 300,000 members worldwide. So, uh, Oh, okay, great. Thanks a okay. lot. And okay. uh, I will you. talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that was uh, Mitchell Joachim, Ph.D. Uh, I want to thank, once, you know, thank you all for tuning in. Um, it was great having him on. I strongly advise that you check out the episode of uh, uh, Big Ideas for a Small Planet that featured him. It was a great show. Um, and uh, once again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and thank you all for supporting V Radio. Uh, now that I have my, my guests off the air, I did want to comment a little bit. Um, I am not in any way uh, affiliated with Bold Voices TV any longer. Um, that is one of the reasons why I'm not on a regular schedule anymore. I will still be doing far more frequent sorry, far more frequent shows. Um, but now I have a flexible, flexibility to do those whenever I want. And um, basically one of the major benefits of that is that, you know, obviously, like for example, Mr. Joachim could not be on, uh, you know, at 7 p.m. He had to be on earlier. Um, and in addition to that, there's just uh, Bold Voices TV was a good idea in, in concept, but um, some of the people who run it are the kind of people who just sit around on the Internet for hours on end critiquing everything and, uh, some of the people in the chat rooms are not very polite to people that I forward in that direction. Uh, there's a lot of very heavily brainwashed free market capitalists in that channel, so um, just to the point where they're insulting about it. And that was kind of what turned me away from it. It was not a good place to send people if they wanted to hear about our ideas. Um, I still welcome you know, any of those people if they want to call in and debate. You know, that's not it. I'm more than happy to do that. Um, we've had some good conversations with them, but Overall, uh, me separating from them was a good move. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, uh, it's a new month. V Radio is still looking for donations to stay on the air. Uh, we will. Uh, the do- donation widget has been open. Now is the time. I just got my bill, and uh, I'm going to have to get some things together for that. And you can donate, uh, once again, on my MySpace. Uh, there's a link to my MySpace and my blog on v-radio.org. That's v-radio.org with a hyphen between the V and the word radio. Um, I only need, uh, as I said previously, about $100 a month overall to keep everything running smoothly. And uh, we're now to that stage again where I have to ask for donations. Thank you to everybody who's donated so far. Uh, it has definitely been one of the major motivating factors keeping me doing this is the fact that you guys are helping me do it, which means that you want to continue to hear it. <laughs> Um, 
So uh, once again, uh, I'm going to be looking into getting some more uh, uh, guests who are relevant to this topic. There was another gentleman who was featured on Big Ideas for Small Planet, Carlton Brown, I believe his name is, and he designs uh, green, like totally green recyclable uh, apartment complexes in Harlem, like you know, in, in the, the deep inner city. Uh, they use geothermal to heat and cool the buildings. Um, I'm hoping to be able to get him on at some point. I've got to keep looking for his phone number, but um, he's been busy. Uh, and there, there are some other guests that I'm looking into. If there's anybody that you would like to hear or see on V-Radio, of course, um, you have ways to get a hold of me. Um, and uh, check out v-radio.org, v-radio.org. Um, I appreciate your support. Uh, check out my blog, which I am updating fairly regularly now. And um, once again, the Resource-Based Economy Caucus is still up and running, um, and it is my intention also to try to look into doing something in the Green Party. Uh, as it was discussed on a previous show we had, uh, the Green Party is very compatible with our ideas, and I think it's a good place to start. If you haven't joined the Green Party already, um, it is something I would seriously consider because um, the Green Party is... Um, very compatible with a lot of our ideas, and most of the people I've spoken to in the Green Party were all like, well, duh, you know, <laughs> very much behind what it is that we're doing, and I think it's a good place to start. The, the Green Party convention will be here in Michigan next year, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and yes, I, I would certainly like to get some people, this is answering Senti in the chat, uh, you could find some people who work specifically in energy-related fields. Even I have thought about getting into alternative energy. Um, I've always wanted to get into robotics, but I allowed myself to be talked out of it because I have a, a learning disability with math called dyscalculia. And one of the most you know, robotics engineers I talked to recently was like, what, math? I don't do that. That's what calculators are for. So, um, but unfortunately, you know, it, just, it, was, it was bad timing in my life, but I am hoping to try to further my education in some of the direction that would be necessary. And I urge all of you out there listening to really look into... Uh, um, really look into what it is that we're doing, you know, uh, to find ways to educate yourself. Just as Jacques Fresco said recently in my interview with him uh, in, you know, in Venus, Florida, that it is, in fact, very useful if we start getting people who are into computers, robotics, automation, alternative energy, uh, and also, as, you know, Mr. Joachim just pointed out, you know, that there are biological solutions in many cases rather than, you know, industrial solutions, you know, for finding places to live and other systems involved. So we're now down to 90 seconds, um, and it's been great being on today. I'm very glad and very happy with the show and how it went. Um, and once again, to emphasize, I still do want to deal with the Resource-Based Economy Caucus because it doesn't cost anything to join the Boston Tea Party, and it kind of gives us a foothold into the libertarian movement. Uh, the Green Party will be much easier, of course, to sell the idea to them, but it's kind of like, you know, uh, going along with them is a great place to start, and they're definitely a bigger party. But it costs money to join political parties, <laughs> and it doesn't cost anything to join the Boston Tea Party. So if you haven't already joined the Boston Tea Party, it doesn't cost you anything, and you can help us with the caucus. I'm hoping we can run candidates in the Resource-Based Economy Caucus to perhaps get into debates and address our ideas. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning into V-Radio, and um, I hope that you've enjoyed the show, and I hope that you enjoy the future installments. Uh, let me know if any of you guys have something specific you'd like me to talk about. I'll bring it up, because one of the things I'm running out of is uh, subject matter, because you can only talk about the Venus Project so many times. So 
it's also the reason I haven't gotten Jock or Roxanne on again is just it's like, what am I going to ask them that I haven't already asked them a dozen times? So, But anyway, uh, that's it for today's edition of V-Radio. Thanks again for everybody to tune in. Thank you all for your support. Visit vradio.org and uh, consider a donation. Thanks again.